I'm so gone Anyone could see That I'm wasted You cut through And I just want to know Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. From Western to the world. I'm your host, Ariel Frame, here with my co-host, Navneet Mohan. Hi, Ariel. Uh, today, we're interviewing David Wright. Hi, Ariel. He's from the biochemistry department, and he's here to tell us about his work. So why don't you tell us, first of all, uh, whose lab you're in and uh, what your project involves? Okay, so I'm in the Dr. O'Donohue's lab in the biochemistry department. So we do something called genetic code expansion and use that to study a bunch of different enzymes. So I use the, um, em- I work on the enzyme thyroreduxin reductase 1, which is a reductase, which means it gives electrons to other proteins. And it's involved in cancer and a bunch of other biological processes. Okay, I just want to go back a step there. You said genetic encoding or expansion? Genetic, genetic code expansion. Genetic code expansion. So that's, is that a method or a technique? Yeah. It's and a, what is it? It's a technique where we basically change how bacteria read DNA so that we can make proteins with um, unnatural or abnormal amino acids. So most proteins just have 20. And okay. And then we change how bacteria read the DNA so okay. that we can make proteins with 21 or 22 or more amino acids. So there are some amino acids that occur naturally, but you can sort of like hack a bacteria to produce yep. like things yep. that don't happen naturally, the amino acids that don't occur naturally. Yeah, so we use this to, um, we use tRNAs from other from other organisms, which is how the cell reads your DNA. So each uh, each set of three DNA letters gets read by a tRNA, which brings in an amino acid to make a protein. So if you add in tRNA, different tRNAs from other organisms, you can change how the cell reads the DNA. Okay. So actually, I mean, how how different are tRNAs generally? Like, I mean, uh, somehow I imagined tRNA, you know, that's kind of a really important job in the cell. It's got to bring in the amino acids to a certain code, and um, it's got to be able to read it very robustly. So I imagine that they're, like, very similar tRNA in me versus, like, a fish and a hamster or whatever. Um, uh, So how... How much do these tRNAs actually vary, and where where are you actually? Where is it naturally found? I mean, unless it's a totally synthetic and invented, this tRNA you guys use, where does it come from? So um, most of the tRNAs are similar between species, and well, between like all mammals will have similar tRNAs, mm. but bacteria will have different tRNAs than mammals, and then there's some strange cases where there's tRNA amino acids that don't occur in other organisms and then those have their own tRNA pairs then we use those ones so the tRNA I use is from an archaea organism which isn't bacteria and it's not mammals it's like its own little subset that broke off before multicellular life came and then those come this one comes from um, an organism that lives on the heat vents at the bottom of the ocean I can't remember the name. It's a methane, 
methanococcus something or other. But right, it's the kind of bacteria that lives off methane. Well, it's um, not bacteria. It's not bacteria, but okay. it's it's the closest analogy would be bacteria bacteria so archaea okay. they're um but they live off methane is that yeah they, they live off methane at like okay. the heat those vents at the mm-hmm. bottom of the ocean they're basically aliens on on earth they're totally yeah. different from yeah they everything like else. they live in places where nothing else can usually sweet yeah so we use a mutant form of that so we got a tRNAs from that organism and then they've been heavily mutated to put in the amino acid we want Mm-hmm. So if these are found in heat vents, how do you get them into your lab? Um, we just, so somebody somebody else went down and then they took like samples of these. Okay. And then we just take the gene. So we don't actually have the organism. We just okay. have the tRNA gene from that organism. And then we use it in E. coli, which is easy to grow in labs. All right. But yeah, I, f- I guess if you have just the code, then all you need is that code. So I could like email you the code. I could email anybody the code and they could produce it. In genetic yeah. material with that code in their lab and they're, and they're good they can use the same yeah. technique you do right yeah yeah <laughs> so just going back to your the enzyme that you work on the trxr1 yeah yeah so why is it important why do you so, study this so we, the, we didn't we didn't define the, the acronyms the, the trxr1 is that thyroidoc the, the enzyme that you kind of went off that's the trxr1 right yeah so it's okay thyroredoxin reductase one right so that's where the acronym comes yeah. from so it's we'll um, call it trx what is it trxr1 great yeah so it is as the name says it's thyroredoxin reductase so it's the reductase of thyroredoxin which is complicated but there's um basically there's your cells make something called reactive oxygen species whenever they generate energy it's like a byproduct of um, respiration okay and, and then, is that byproduct harmful in any manner yeah so it those things are like hydrogen peroxide and stuff like that and they can rip out electrons from other things in your cell so you can get like dna breaks and uh, messed up proteins if you have a lot of ros in your cell okay so, so uh, is that like is that like an, an analogy would be where your car is rusting like where you have this oxygen eating up your car and it's <laughs> rusting is that i think a better similar but a better analogy would be if you had i don't know cars this well so mm-hmm. but if you were burning gas in your car tank and okay. then that harm over time harmed the gas tank so that okay. you had to replace it so if it's like the burning the gas you need it for your car to run but mm-hmm. it can also damage the car right I okay I don't mm. know cars though, so that might not be the best the best analogy. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it's uh, this is just like the cost of 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 Being generating alive. generating energy. It's uh, you know, it, yeah. when you, when you work really hard, like, I mean, it's really a, kind of an abstract analogy that I like to think of. But like, um, you take uh, I don't know two. I don't know, pieces of wood, anything really. And, and, uh, you make a mechanical structure and, and as you work on it more and more, it, they rub together and it wears yeah. it down. So right. what wears down a cell is this Ross because it builds up all the time. And so more a cell does what it usually does, which is eat and, uh, 
eat and poop. Like that's pretty much it. Anything does. So a cell does the same thing. It eats, makes energy and poops. And as it's doing that, is things rub against each other and accidentally produce this really bad stuff for us. And it, it causes havoc. And, uh, and then eventually it gets really, really bad. So I don't know. That's how I kind of <laughs> think yeah. of Ross. It's just a cost of doing business. Sometimes you got to replace parts. Yeah, it's just like the byproduct of generating energy, and then it damages the cells. Mm-hmm. So you want to get rid of that before it can do much damage. Okay, so let's build on this. So you've got this um, TRXR1, and it, its job, its normal job, is to deal with this problem, right? With this problem of waste just building up when a cell does its cell thing. Um, so what do you what are what interests you about TRXR one? What what is it involved in predominantly and how do you want to change it? So the the main focus the main um, research around it is in cancer. It's has high activity in a lot of different types of cancers and it's a drug target for some types of cancers. So breast cancer is one example where they have, um, they'll give two drugs to people going underneath radiation therapy. One of them inhibits something else in breast cancer, and then the second drug will inhibit thyroidoxin reductase 1. And then when you go underneath radiation therapy, to tr- like the form of chemotherapy, that works by generating ro- ROS in cancer cells to try and kill the cancer cells with ROS. So if you inhibit thyroidoxin reductase 1, then it has a better chance of the ROS killing the cancer cells. So actually the, you're inhibiting that defense mechanism specifically in the cancer cells because then if you don't and you bombard yourself with the radio or whatever, it, uh, that therapy will, to kill it, what, what, what's stopping that therapy from killing all your cells? So cancer cells, because they generate more um, energy than normal cells already, they have uh, higher levels of ROS oh, than normal cells. Because okay. that's like when you have a tumor growing, it divides so fast and makes so much energy so it can divide fast that it naturally has higher levels of ROS than the rest of your cells in your body. Hmm. So if you can increase the levels of ROS in all your cells, it can push the cancer cells over the threshold, but not your normal cells. Okay, so, so there's you, like... You will be damaging your normal cells, too. You'll just be killing cancer cells to a higher degree. Okay, so you got, like, regular cells. They're they're making ROS at, like, a level 3, and these cancer cells are making it level 10 ROS, like, high production. Um, and then you bombard with uh, this damaging rays of sorts, chemotherapy sort of thing, and it basically goes anything above a 5 threshold is going to be produ- have so much ROS that that ROS is going to kill that cell. So all your other cells are at a three; they pump up to a four. They're not; they're okay. They're they're okay. But the tens are already pretty damn high, and they usually have the defense, but you've inhibited. That's your TRXR one, and now they're at eleven, and they're they're totally toast. Yeah, that's that's the basic theory behind it. Cool. Okay. Well, I mean, not to like stray too far, but uh, I imagine there's other cells in your body that sometimes are you know producing pretty fast one one highly energetic a couple couple types of cells i can imagine that need a lot of energy are uh, maybe in your in your uh, eye and in your brain maybe some neurons and also like your sperm cells 
like your gametes and stuff, those all seem like they would need a lot of energy, maybe produce more ROS. I don't know. Do, are those affected worse by that therapy? This might be straying too far, but I'm just... Um, I haven't seen much, much research on that, but I do know that the testy cells, they have higher levels of thyroid redox and reductase. So they might might be affected by this, but I haven't seen any research on on the effect of radiation on those. Yeah, I mean, like, I know that people who get, like, some cancer in the testes and they get a therapy, they usually, they'll be like, okay, this may not end well for your, your testes, so maybe you should donate some sperm first. <laughs> so maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. So this enzyme is produced in every cell in your body. It's not just... In yeah, a particular it's, organ, it's every cell, but it okay. will be produced at in higher levels in some cells. Okay, so what happens if you have too much or too little of this enzyme? So if you have too little in a healthy mm-hmm. cell, then mm-hmm. usually nothing happens because there's two main ROS defense systems in humans. So one of them it relies on this enzyme, okay, and then the other one relies on a separate enzyme called glutathione reductase. Okay. So they both do the same thing in the cell, mm-hmm. and if you not, if you like delete one of them and without the other, then nothing happens. But if you delete both of them in a healthy cell, then the cell gets sick, and okay. usually usually dies shortly after. Okay. And what happens if you have too much of it? If you have too much, there's usually not that much of an effect, on, on, other than it will be resistant to things like radiation. Okay. So the okay. cancer cells, they usually have higher levels because it's um, a selective pressure from them having high levels of ROS. So they get the high levels of ROS, and mm-hmm. then the c- cancer cells that can survive that happen to have higher levels of this enzyme. Okay. okay. They're sneaky. They find a way. They're mm-hmm. like, all right, well, I'm produ- I'm trying to, I've got some... I've got a I've got a mission. My mission mm-hmm. is grow lots and cause havoc. Uh, and how do I do it well? It turns out to do that. Remember, produce a lot of ROS by doing that. And how do I deal with that? Well, only the ones that are able to deal with it. They're the ones that survive. So they're the ones that have yeah. the high defense mechanisms. Your TRX R1. That's pretty much just selection happening within your body, like evolution happening within your yeah, body. It's like Kinda. it's like natural selection, just on the fastest growing cell in your body. That's yeah, cool. I think it is definitely natural selection. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. So, just going back to your uh, the method in which you produce these enzymes, you 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 mentioned briefly about how you hack into a bacteria to about or how you hack into an E. coli to to produce these enzymes. So could you just say what that process looks like? Okay, so with this one, um, for this enzyme, mm-hmm. when most of these things get made in human cells, they then get modified af- afterwards. So they'll get extra chemical groups added on to certain amino acids. Okay, so the enzyme by itself isn't very useful. It, it has to go out and like hold on to other molecules before it can start acting on so, stuff? Sort of. So we don't know what most of these modifications do yet. We okay. know what some of them do. So okay. I, with my research, I mm. was trying to make the modified version of these enzymes to figure out how that affects its activity. Okay. So you take this enzyme and you attach other molecules to it and see what happens to this enzyme and how it reacts 
Yeah, how the, it affects this activity. Okay, that's cool. So again, just going back to the process of how you make this enzyme. Okay, so we have the we take the human gene for the enzyme, mm-hmm. and then we put that into a um, DNA c- construct that lets it get turned into protein in E. coli. Okay. So and if we give E. coli this DNA, it will just produce this human enzyme. Okay. Okay. So you're giving cool. it. You're giving it the instructions. Yeah, we're and giving it's the like okay. I yeah, uh, this is like the language I speak, so I'll just read it. I'll read the instructions and make what you want me to make. It's yeah, it's like giving E. coli an instruction manual for how to make this this enzyme. And then we add in a um tag on the on the enzyme that binds metal so that when we after we grow the E. coli with the enzyme in it, we can break open the E. coli cells and then separate out our enzyme with a something called a nickel column, which just has um, a bunch of nickel ions that bind mm-hmm. the take we put on our protein. Okay, okay. So it's, it it's it like pulling it with a magnet. Like if yeah. you had ion particles in your porridge and you want to get the ion out, you use a magnet and pull it out. Yeah, something it's, like that? it's exactly like that. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's how you isolate this enzyme. And so what did you see when you isolated it? So when we isolate it, we, um, what do you mean by, by what do we Okay, so like what do you do? Like now that you've isolated mm-hmm. it, um, like maybe, maybe, I, maybe I, can, I can narrow down the question a little bit. So I think uh, if I remember correctly from looking, looking over your abstract a little bit, it, it seems like, you know, you did, like you said, you wanted to see what these modifications on the enzyme mm. do. So you give your E. coli uh, the instructions for regular TRXR1 and modified TRXR1, and you compare them, and then you have multiple modifications. So the question is, how do you compare them? So you've done all that. You take it out. Now you got your protein. So how do you tell the difference? What is what is the difference? Do you, like, measure what it does? or what? Okay, what is okay yeah. Um, so we do activity assays on it where we – so this enzyme gives electrons to other – other things so there's some substrates you can buy that it works on naturally in human cells and then if you mix the enzyme with the substrates and an electron donor then you can um, measure see the reaction going just with by measuring the one of the products forming with light so you shine a little beam of light through the reaction and then as the as the product forms so as this enzyme gives an electron to something you get a change in light absorbance. So it lets you monitor how quickly this enzyme is giving electrons to substrates. So and that's that is like the natural job of this of this enzyme. So you're you know, kind of the enzyme's chugging along, doing what it does in the cell, then you take it you take a bunch of them out of a mil of like millions of cells, uh, take them somewhere else and say, Do the job that you usually do. I wanna see how good you are you are at it. Yeah, that's exactly exactly <laughs> what we're doing. So, okay. cool. Okay, that's really uh, is interesting how we can like on a molecular basis just prod and poke at these little proteins. Like these are, it's so unim- we can't see them, right? They're, like <laughs> you just mm-hmm. trust you put in little solutions from here or there. Like look, actually, kind of maybe run us through a day in the life of in the lab, the Donahue lab. Like what you come in and 
what uh, what kind of stuff do you actually do day to day more often? So most of the time, it's literally just growing E. coli. So that's the majority of the time is just growing different enzyme variants in E. coli, and then that takes um, about a week, an entire week to grow all the E. coli, and then it takes like two or three more days to purify your enzyme from the E. coli. And then okay. after that, then you have to do a bunch of stuff to figure out how much enzyme you got from the purification. Mm-hmm. And then you have to, then you do the activity assays where it's mixing the enzymes with the, the substrates. And then we do those in a spectrometer, which is a machine that shines light through the solution and then measures the formation of products that absorb light. So that's most, it's mostly growing E. coli, purifying enzymes, and then running activity assays on enzymes with different modifications to try and figure out how those modifications should affect the activity in the cell. I mean, uh, left field here, totally, totally different. But uh, I mean, I mean, in my mind, I was thinking, oh, this is kind of like you're farming E. coli, and like you've got a bunch of them, you're growing them, making them happy, and then slaughtering them all and taking out the specific good stuff that you need from it and testing it. Um, and I mean, <laughs> that is sort of that, that is, is sort of what exactly that is sort of what it is. It is. It's a weird way to look at it. Maybe people don't care. Obviously, there's no uh, there's no there's no Greenpeace caring about slaughtering E. coli. They're not worried about it. Um, but that is actually, I mean, we maybe we're talking joking about it a little bit before. But synthetic synthetic meat, like grown in this way, like pretty much, mm. you'd have to have farmers like you if you could call yourself a farmer in a way <laughs> um, to make the food that we want to eat, you know, couldn't we make, couldn't you, can we give, couldn't you give the instructions to all the nutrients we want to this E. coli, make it produce exactly the right balanced meal, whole balanced breakfast. And then you produce your, my balanced breakfast in the farm and hand it over after you're done. Um, you, you could, but with, with that, I'm imagining a gross liquid that you get, not not like a steak. But we couldn't have them produce, um, you know, also some of the sweet a tasting prime rib steak. Yeah, yeah. I think think fungus or something's your best bet for that. Oh, okay, all right. Yeah, okay. multicellular, multicellular stuff, not not bacteria. Cool. I mean, on, but on this is like the insulin. It's grown the same way as I grow this. So that's how they make human insulin. Is in E. coli basically okay. through the same way, but they purify it a little bit differently. So, yeah, I mean, here in London, we do a lot of, um, I don't know, is, I think maybe manufacturing. I'm not really quite sure, but there's manufacturing. I know there's a good industrial stuff going on in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you're from London, right? Yeah. So have you thought a little bit maybe, like, what you want to do if you want to stay in London? What kind of jobs... Maybe there's a farming, E. coli farming <laughs> opportunity in London. I don't know. Well, uh, what do you think you, what ideas do you have for the future? Um, I'm going to try and do my PhD here. So I'm in a master's program now. I'm going to try and transfer and do a PhD in the same lab I'm in now. Then after that, I will, might eventually work for a um, pharmaceutical company of some sort. Or there's a lot of biotechnology companies around around this area. The biggest one is Monsanto, which I'm not going to work for. 
but because they do plant stuff, not bacteria stuff. But there's a lot of biotech companies around London, Ontario. That's really awesome. Cool. Yeah, I mean, um, actually, could you maybe for some of the people who are interested in the in the in the process of like being a student, you know, could you tell us how you decided on you know becoming a student and specifically a master's student with this transfer? I think people who especially are in other fields aren't as familiar because I'm actually doing the same thing. I'm a master's and I'm going to transfer to PhD in January. So um, some people are not familiar with that. They're like, what are you talking about? Transfer to PhD? Um, so. What was your thought process going in and, uh, you know, how how does one do that? Like, why can you do that? Um, So basically there's, when you apply for a grad school, you need, there's a certain great average you need to do a master's program. Then there's another average you need for a PhD program. And then if you, so if you don't, if you have the average to get into the master's program, but not the PhD, you could start doing a master's then after about a year. If you, if you're committee members, so you have a committee when you do a master's program which evaluates your research every once in a while. So if they think you're capable of doing a PhD, then they'll let you transfer. And then there's another test, test that you have to go through which I'm not completely familiar with but I think you have to give a written summary and then like a presentation in front of three professors who then evaluate you. And if two say yes, then you switch and do a PhD program. So you do it this way, instead of going directly into the PhD program, if you want to try out the lab to see if you liked it, or if you just didn't have the marks to get into the PhD program right away. Cool, so there are, there are options in those that maybe think it's daunting to go into the world of research then this is a good way to like you know test the waters and try it out because a master's is like two years and not that it's not hard it's quite hard but it's not the not it's half the commitment that uh, that a phd is so you can you can try it out this way and that's a good way to go about it so um i'm gonna ask you a double question because we're getting to sort of the end and i so uh you said you're in the donahue lab um, and I wanted to know if people were super interested in the Donahue Labs work and what you had talked about today, um, how could they, how could they follow up on your work as well as work done in your lab? Um, we don't have a, a website or anything, but there's a section on the biochemistry department about the lab. So if you just looked up the O'Donohue lab, which is O apostrophe D o-n-o-g-h-u-e it's hard hard name to spell then you'll get a little blurb on his research and the type of stuff we do yep and it sounds interesting it definitely does farming of e coli i never knew that was a thing yeah <laughs> yeah i know what we're, we're uh, glad to have you on uh, and we're just about out of time here so we'll leave it at that um we'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in if you're listening on the radio uh, at CHRW uh, 94.9 uh, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. We're always live at two, well, not live, but we're live-ish at uh, 6 p.m. every Tuesday. Uh, and if you're listening to us on the podcast, thanks again as well. Um, that's available basically wherever podcasts are provided. Uh, just look up GradCast. Um, and we have been, uh, Ariel Frame and 
Navneet Mohan. Navneet Mohan uh, interviewing David Wright from the biochem- biochemistry department about his E. coli and enzyme project. Um, and if you want to come on the show uh, and be a guest, then you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Um, and you can check out our other episodes. We've got them all online at gradcast.ca. You can also email us at that same address if you want to be part of the committee, if you're a grad student and you want to do what we're doing and uh, be a host as well. It's actually, it's uh, it's kind of a fun, fun job. It's fun. Uh, so, and it's good on, it's good on your CV, both as a committee member and a guest. So go ahead and contact, contact us uh, whenever you like. Um, and... That's our show. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Everything starts at your skin.